Paul is in Jerusalem. He wanted to get there by Pentecost, coming to Jerusalem. He was warned. Uh, people didn't want him to go that loved him. He said, look, I, the Holy Spirit's ministering to me. Bonds and afflictions are waiting for me. None of these things move me. Agabus came down uh, when he was on his way and took his uh, sash and tied himself up with it. And he says, so the man who goes to Jerusalem owns his sash. He's going to be bound there. Paul comes to Jerusalem. He brings a large offering for the church at Jerusalem that had been impoverished. There were difficult times that had come. And when he comes there, James, the Lord's half-brother, who is the elder of the church at that time, said, look, there's, there's thousands of Jews that believe now in, in Jesus, the, the Messiah. And he said, but all the rumblings come in from your ministry that you're going all over the world teaching people to forsake Moses and the traditions and all of this, not amongst the believing Jews. Now, he, said, he said, this would probably be great if you consider it. There's four men here that have taken a vow, singular. Would you be the person that goes and supplies the, the offering uh, relative to the vow? And so Paul is just not offering sacrifice, but he's paying the price of their offering. And he goes down to the temple. He sees the priest. He uh, follows the, the directions to be then purified. Seven days later, he comes back with these men. And then the riot starts, uh, taken to the steps of the Antonio Fortress, asks again, the tribune, who's over a thousand men, can I speak to the crowd? And his Greek is so proper, the tribune shocked and says, I thought you were this Egyptian. that calls he said, Egyptian, I'm a, I'm a Jew. What are you talking about? So he said, yeah, go on, talk to them. And in, in the midst of what he's sharing, they settled down because he spoke in Aramaic. And then the tribune wasn't sure what he was saying. And when he got to the word Gentile, the roof blew off and it all started over again. So they drug him into the Antonio Fortress. And the tribune said to one of the centurions, the tribune had 10 centurions under him, each with 100 men, so 1,000 men under his disposal. He said, take them, scourge them, examine them. So they, they, they racked him out, stretched him over the post where they were gonna begin to scourge him. And Paul said to the centurion, is, is it legal? to scourge a Roman citizen. The centurion said, what? He said, better go ask the tribune. So he runs in and says, this guy says he's a, he's a Roman citizen. He comes back and he says, you're, you're a Roman citizen? He said, yeah. And he said, well, I, I bought my citizenship. It was very expensive, very pressing. Paul says, I'm freeborn. I was born a Roman citizen. And the guy then has to back off, should have never had him in shackles in the first place and should never have come close to the scourging and the questioning. So then the, the tribune doesn't know what to do. So he goes down the next day where the religious leaders are gathered and Ananias, not Caiaphas, not Annas from the Gospels, but Ananias, who is a very miserable human being and the high priest at this point in time, one of the Sadducees. And he says he wants to know what's going on. So they're in an uproar. I don't know if they're speaking Greek at this point in time because the, 
the Tribune wants to get a hold on what's happening because the, the Romans would not put up with riots or sedition. And Paul says, perceiving part of them are Pharisees, part of them are Sadducees, the smaller groups. He, he says, what's the problem here? Because I'm a Pharisee and Pharisees believe in the resurrection. I believe in the resurrection and all this is going on. Then the, the Pharisees said, yeah, what's right? And so this, the Sadducees, the Pharisees get into an uproar and they got to take Paul out of there again. And they have him in custody. And it tells us then that his nephew, his sister's son, and we get this glimpse of the first time that he has family in Jerusalem, his sister's son comes and says, I want to see Uncle Paul. Uh, he's not in prison. He's just in custody because he's a citizen. And they give him access to his uncle. Verse 16 and 23 says, And when Paul's sister's son heard, now there's a conspiracy against Paul, of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the Antonio and he told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, you better bring this young man unto the chief captain, the tribune, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain, the tribune, and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who has something to tell thee. Now, a young man could be anything from a child to 18, 20 young man, but it, it seems that he's younger. Look in verse 19, by the way, the tribune treats him. It says, then the chief captain took him by the hand. You do that to a, a younger man. Took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, what is it that thou hast to tell me? And he said, well, the Jews have agreed to desire you that you were to bring down Paul tomorrow into the council, the Sanhedrin, as though they want to inquire some more of him, understand things more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait, there's an ambush for him, of them more than 40 men, which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink until they have killed him. So they want to get the job done, or they're going to be eating or drinking for a while, you know. And they're in trouble anyhow because the Lord's appeared to Paul and said, You're going to Rome, so these guys are going to die of starvation and dehydration. Um, it's always, when you and the Lord are, you're always a majority. They've, they've sworn they're not going to eat or drink until they've killed him. Now, are they ready, looking for a promise from you, looking for you to say, yeah, we'll be down tomorrow. So the chief captain, the tribune, then let the young man depart. But notice, he charged him. See thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. No, no doubt he's concerned about this boy's safety because of the way the Jews would treat him if they found out he went to the Romans to tell them about the plot. These are murderers, they're gonna do this. And he doesn't want them to get a heads up on him in regards to what's his response gonna be here because 
if, if there's a big hubbub the next day and there's 40 of these Sicaro, these guys with daggers, they want then it gets to his superior's ears, then he's in trouble for not keeping order. So it says, then he called unto him, look in verse 23, two centurions, saying, ready 200 soldiers, make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea. So each centurion has 100 men under him. And he says, we're going to go to Caesarea. I had a a better shot, but here uh, we'll give you what you can. They're going from Jerusalem to Caesarea. See it there? Jerusalem to Caesarea. And right in the middle is Antipatris. It's about 35 miles to Antipatris and then 27 more to Caesarea. Here we go. Uh, Going from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Doesn't look far, but it's uh, over 70 miles. So they're going to travel the first night 35 miles to a town called Antipatris. Will they break for the night? And then the next day, they go to Caesarea. Caesarea was the capital and where the procurator reigned over the jurisdiction of Syria, Israel, Judea. And uh, they would only come up, even when it was Pontius Pilate, it's Felix at this point, would only come up to Jerusalem sometimes during the feast to try to keep order but Caesarea, they built a huge port there. They built this beautiful amphitheater. They had all kinds of things there. And that was the capital, the Roman capital of this area of the world. So now the, the tribune takes 200, two centurions that make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea and horsemen, three score and ten, seventy cavalry. And then the King James says, and spearmen, two hundred, at the third hour of the night. That's nine o'clock at night in the Roman time. So this is 470 soldiers accompanying Paul. When God wants to use the unsaved world to take care of us, he really knows how to do it. Um, and it says 200 spearmen, the, the Greeks uncertain there whether some feel it says slingers, some feel it says spearmen. Uh, The special guards in the Roman army had to be able to hit somebody between the eyes at 50 paces with their sling. Uh, So it may be slingers. Um, I like spearmen better in my mind as I see the picture of this. So, so here now, 470 Roman soldiers are going to accompany Paul. He's traveling first class with the Lord. Who cares about the 40 guys that are after him? And it says, now he's traveling by night again. We're fine. Paul does a lot of traveling by night. And provide them beasts that they may set Paul. So Paul doesn't have to walk. He's going to get a ride. And bring him safe to Felix, the governor. Now, Felix is ruling in Caesarea. Felix um, is a cruel man. Him and his brother, Paulus, were slaves in Rome. 
And they were slaves for Antonia. Antonia was the mother of Claudius, who sees her at this point in time. So Paulus and Felix and Claudius were playmates together when they were boys. And when Claudius becomes Caesar, he puts Paulus in a different position. Um, He was kind of his favorite. And he puts Felix here in Judea because he frees them and gives them their freedom when he's Caesar. And Felix is the first ever freed man that becomes a procurator. He's the first man in Roman history that was born a slave and ends up to be procurator. And he's put in that position by Claudius, but he's a scoundrel. Tactius, the Roman historian, tells us that he reigned with royal might, but with the mind of a slave. He was famous for hunting down any of the Jews that gave him a hard time, particularly the Saqqara, and when he caught them, he would crucify them. There were crucifixes all over from this man, Felix. So it says here, he sends word now to Felix. He says that they may go and bring him safe to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter. Look at verse 25. It's very interesting. He said he wrote a letter after this manner. The Greek text for after this manner means this is the exact text. So either Paul was able to get a copy of it, he's going to end up two years in Caesarea, or Dr. Luke, who wrote the gospel and writing this book of Acts, actually got a copy on it. They were both Roman citizens. Luke is both Hellenists. Luke educated a doctor, had a license to practice medicine in the Roman world. In some way, Paul gets a copy. So it says here, these are the exact words. This is a transcript of the letter written by the Tribune to Felix. It's the second letter that we have in the book of Acts. You remember in chapter 15, we have an exact copy of the letter that James and the elders in Jerusalem sent to the Gentiles by Paul and Silas. Here again, we have an exact copy, remarkably, of this letter. It says, and he wrote a letter after this manner, after the exact text. And it says this, Claudius Lysias. Now, this is the first time in the book we finally have the tribune named. This, call him the chief captain through the chapter. He's a tribune over a thousand men. His name is Claudius Lysias. Lysias, no doubt, was his Roman name. Claudius is a given name because he said he purchased his freedom at great price. It was during the reign of Claudius. So no doubt he feels indebted. So he takes the name, once he's a free man, Claudius Lysias. And here's, here's our text. Claudius Lysias, unto the most excellent governor, Felix, sendeth greeting. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. And when I would have known the cause whereof they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, 
whom I perceive to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or bonds. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid in wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. So that's the letter that he sends. He sends it to, it says here, Claudius Lysias unto the most excellent governor, Felix. The most excellent, there's Cratesty. It's interesting, Luke uses it in Luke chapter 1 when he writes to most excellent Theophilus. And you had to be a senator, you had to be in the upper crust. There was what was called the equestrian guild in the Roman world. And to be a member, that was like being a knight. So here's this slave who ends up being a, having a royal position in civil authority. And he recognizes that, Claudius Lysias, as he writes, he says, unto the most excellent Kratostos, Governor Felix sendeth greetings. He's sending his greetings. So this man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. So Claudius Lysias is stretching the truth here a bit. Because in the chapter before this, he had him in chains, and he said, you can speak Greek. I thought you were this Egyptian. That was after he had already gotten hands on him. Not good for a Roman commander to chain a Roman citizen. Uh, so that looks bad for him. So he kind of pads the truth a little bit here. But anybody who pads the truth tells a lie. So he, said, he says, when I perceived, when I understood that he was a Roman. He didn't understand that right away. Not till he had him chained over a pole and he was going to whip him. And when I would have known the cause, wherefore they accused him, I brought him into their council, amongst their elders, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their own law. It was a religious argument. And the, and the Romans generally left that to the locals. But it had nothing to do, nothing was laid to his charge that would make him worthy of death or of bonds. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid in wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. If you have anything to accuse Paul of, you need to go to Caesarea, and there's a legitimate Roman tribunal that will be held, and you have to make your case there. It says, then, as, as, anyhow, his accuser will come before thee, farewell. Truly yours, Claudius, Lysias. It says, then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. That, that's, Antipatris is halfway between Jerusalem and uh, it's not on the map. It will be next week. 
It's halfway between, so you can see the journey. Look, this is 35 miles, leaving at 9 o'clock at night. It's hard to tell what time they got there. There's, there's 200 footmen, soldiers, 200 spearmen, and there's 70 cavalry. And Paul's in the middle of it, probably on a donkey, not on a horse. And, and they travel 35 miles is a good, you know, they, this is not on a seat, on a jet. This is not, you know, in a Tesla. This is, this is uh, on a horse getting jerked around for 35 miles at night to get to this place. So at Antipatris, no doubt there was a Roman um, fortress there as well. They stopped for the night there at Antipatris, it tells us. And then it says, then on the morrow, 27, 28 more miles to Caesarea, they left the horsemen to go with him and returned to the castle, the Antonio Fortress. So it says what happens at this point, once they get to Antipatris, the cavalry goes with them forward, 70 horsemen, but the 400 footmen returned then to the Antonio Fortress in Jerusalem, who when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle from the letter from Claudius Lysias to the governor Felix, they presented Paul also before him. This is the man that all this is about. And when the governor had read the letter, then he asked of what province he was, Paul, the idea. And he understood then that he was of Cilicia, which is part of his jurisdiction. So we wanted to make sure. And it's a Cilicia that is speaking of here that's in Syria. Um, he understands that he's under his jurisdiction. So he says, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. So Felix takes him now, knows he's a Roman citizen. There has to be the accusers. There has to be a defense. There has to be a Roman tribunal. Anything with a Roman citizen would not be handled any other way. And Paul, because he is a, a Roman citizen, is taken and it says he's put into the judgment hall. Now he's going to be there for two years, not expecting it. But no doubt Luke will be making trips back to Jerusalem, interviewing Mary. You know, he hears things about Zachariah and Elizabeth. None of the other Gospels tell us. He hears the, you know, Mary's, you know, you know, prophecy which he makes when she encounters Elizabeth, the Magnificat. He tells us about Simeon and Anna. No one else tells us that. He tells us about Jesus going back to Jerusalem as a boy. You know, the good doctor said, I talked to eyewitnesses. I talked to those who were there. And he said, and then when all of that was gathered, I was guided from above. And he said, that's how he wrote the gospel. So no doubt Luke is going back and forth. Luke, no doubt, is setting out the, the record of the things that have happened in the book of Acts. And again, you know, Paul's prison epistles will be written in this custody, which we would have never have, would have touched a thousand generations and changed the world. And, it, you know, it can look on your side like things are really terrible, but Jesus had appeared to him in the, in the cell and said, good job. 
Great riot, thank you. Uh, and now you're going to go to Rome as well. And somehow we can lose perspective. God is sovereign. God now puts him into Herod's. Now judgment hall in the Greek there is praetorian, or more properly, it's Herod's palace. Um, uncovered today, next week we'll look at pictures, um, the Hebrew University, Ehed Netzer, began excavations of this area in 1976. And then two professors from the University of Pennsylvania joined the whole process in 1992. Uh, professor Woolley from UAP did Ur of the Chaldees. These other two professors, which were women from University of Pennsylvania, jumped in and helped the Israelis excavate this. Again, Israeli pilots flying over, watching the coast, looked down and saw this big kind of horseshoe in the sand because of the dam the Egyptians built, which kept then the silt from washing up and keeping it all buried. When they saw the horseshoe, this guy goes in, begins to excavate, finds the, the amphitheater, starts to uncover the whole city. That's where they find Pontius Pilate's name, which scholars made fun and said there's no such person. All of these things then turned up, and they uncovered then Herod's palace, this huge structure, and it's built around all these colonnades, and in the center of it all, there's a swimming pool. Okay? 118 foot long and 60 foot wide. Any of you who have a pool, how'd you like to clean that? There's a pool, all the palace is built around it with these colonnades and all these rooms, and the pool is 118, I think it's 115 foot to the back door. Uh, it's longer than our, our middle aisle here. 118 foot long and 60 foot wide. That's probably both sets of pews here, all the way to the back, a little bit past that. And it's filled with fresh water. It's on the Mediterranean, filled with fresh water. They have found the aqueducts that brought the water. The Romans would measure them out. They're engineers because it was water up in Mount Carmel in that area, so they would put the water on a slope. The slope could, you know, might only be this much in 12 or 14 feet, but they sloped it all the way down and brought fresh water in the aqueducts. You can still, when we go to Israel, you're all going to go with us, and you can see all this. You're going to see Caesarea. We start the tour there all the time. Remarkable. So he's got, this is the jail that Paul's in, Okay. I hope one of them likes swimming. You know, here's this magnificent place. And Paul, no doubt, had a guard, but he was free. We're going to hear he's free to have friends. He's free to, you know, so now he's, he's writing. He's in this situation. He must have gone crazy for two years because he's a guy that's always got to be moving, you know. But the Lord knows how to corral him and get everything that's in him out so we could have it tonight from him and from Luke. So he ends up in this praetorian, this judgment hall, literally the palace of Herod. And after five days, now uh, Felix had said, stay here, settle down, hunker down, and when your accusers get here, then I'm going to hear the whole thing. So it says, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders... It means, the Greek seems to indicate with certain elders, not the whole Sanhedrin, 
and with a certain orator named Tertullus. You think you would get somebody named something different when you're going to talk to a guy like Felix, who informed the governor against Paul. So after five days, they descended from Jerusalem. Wherever you went from Jerusalem, they would say you descend from Jerusalem because Jerusalem was elevated spiritually and morally. And even if you went uphill when you left Jerusalem, you descended from Jerusalem. But this was really descent from Jerusalem, 2,500 foot above sea level to sea level where Caesarea was. So they descended from Jerusalem. Ananias, the high priest. Now, this is a big deal. He's the head honcho in Israel's religious world. This is, a, this is a big deal for this guy to come to Caesarea. And he has other elders with him, members probably of the Sanhedrin, not the whole 70. And he got this orator, it says, named Tertullus. Now, the orator is from the Greek term rhetorical. He, he's, he learns rhetoric. He's a lawyer. He has to be a lawyer to be in this position. He's a professional lawyer. And part of what the lawyer learned in those days, besides law, was rhetoric. They learned how to set somebody up in an argument. They learned how to present themselves. And there's a particular way that you would address any kind of royalty or government official. It was called captatio Benevolentia, and I know I said that wrong, but captatio of benevolentia, we get benevolence being kind to some, but it's, it's the idea of a kind introduction. Basically, you're laying it on thick, you're buttering them up, and uh, you, the professional would do that. So it says they brought this orator with him. We don't have any evidence he's a Jew, by the way. Turtleist, which isn't a Jewish name, who informed the governor against Paul. So having truth is never necessary to an orator. And when he was called forth, so Felix signals him to come forth, Tertullius began to accuse him by saying, so here, first thing he does is he butters up. This is, this is the Captatio Benevolentia. He, he, he says, seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always and in all places most noble Felix with all thankfulness. That's a pack of lies. Felix started riots everywhere. In fact, within a few years, Nero, when Nero gets on the throne after Claudius, he brings him back to Rome for the riots he started there and the, reason, the way he couldn't handle things. So Felix is a monster. He's no good. But this guy's, oh, you're so wonderful. Us, you know, the Jews love to live here with you. And, and Felix is married to Drusilla. He, he was, had three wives, two Drusillas, and I forget the other one's name. We'll get there. But this Drusilla is Jewish. So he has a sense of what goes on religiously, the Christians, you know, what's happening. In fact, they're going to call this teaching about Christ heresy. We get the word sect from it or heretic. 
But in this culture, the Sadducees were heretics. They were, they were a sect. The Pharisees were a sect. And Christianity was a sect of Judaism. They were all sects. In fact, the argument's going to be, well, the sect of the Pharisees and the sect of the Christians believe in resurrection. The real heretics here are the Sadducees who don't believe what the Bible says. So it's a very interesting argument that develops. So he butters him up. He lays it on thick. These Jews hated the Romans, but he's telling them how wonderful he is, how they all enjoy being ruled by him. Felix's baloney meters going off, no doubt. And he says, notwithstanding that I be not further tedious, and I'm glad because he was being tedious to me as I was reading this. Tedious. Felix is probably thinking, good, I'm glad that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow, a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So this is the only place and the first place in the Bible where the Christians, you and I are called, that's what we are tonight. We're Nazarenes, if you're wondering. We are Nazarenes, not Nazarites, we're Nazarenes. Um, he, he, so he says here, this pestilent fellow, the word pestilent there is plague. You know, this guy's COVID. You know, the pestilent value, because they, they call him that because they infected other people. They, it wasn't good for their health to be around this guy. So he's called a pestilent. We get pestilence from that. A pestilent fellow, a mover of sedition, stasis. It's a very serious charge in the moment Roman world to start a riot, to start sedition among all the Jews throughout the world. He started riots all over the known world. Now, certainly, Felix would have known of that, as would all Roman officials. Yeah, he started some trouble in, in, in Ephesus when they're all ch you know, chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. But when the Roman you know, ju jurisdiction, guy with jurisdiction comes out, he sends everybody home, they all leave. So they say he's doing this throughout the whole world. And he is a ringleader. Anybody ever tell you that's what you are? He was a ringleader of the sect, heresies, where we get heresy from, the sect of the Nazarenes, who also have gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. They took him and they were beating him to death, you know, Claudius Lysias had to come down the tribune, had to come with soldiers to save his life. They drug him out of the temple, and it says they were beating him. You know, it says we took him, and we were going to judge him according to our law. That's, that's what, the law of riot? Then he says, but the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us with great violence, great brutality, police brutality, and he took him away out of our hands. Now look. He better be careful what he's saying because Claudius Lysias is a tribune. He has tremendous authority. And if he hears that old turdy is telling Felix 
that he came down with great violence and he didn't do that. He carried Paul to safety, took him back up. And now when he got him up there, he was going to whoop him. But, you know, he didn't do, there was no great violence when he took him away out of their hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. You can examine this and see this for yourself. And the Jews also assented, saying, these things are all true. So the Jews that came with them, they're all saying, this is the truth. This is what happened. Now, verse 10, it says, Then Paul, after that the governor beckoned him to speak. So the governor, when you go to Caesarea, we'll have to put the picture up next week, and the amphitheater's there. You, you, we go there. When we go there, you think Felix was sitting here. You know, Paul was standing down here somewhere, and it holds, I forget how many thousand. And uh, it says Felix signaled Paul. What he went was basically it's your turn to speak. Everybody else has to be dead quiet. If Turtle had said something again, that would have been the end of him. So he had his chance. Once Felix signals Paul, then it's Paul's turn to talk. After the governor had beckoned him to speak, Paul answers, for as much as I know, now he, he doesn't butter him up. He's not giving him the captatio benevolentia. He's not doing that. He, he says, for as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation. He married to Drusilla. He says, I know you know about our customs and so forth. I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Now, Felix knows it's a mandatory feast, it's Pentecost. He said, I've been up here 12 days. I came up, you know, first thing he did, he went to the church and they met with James and the elders. Then he came the next day and brought the offering to them so they would know it. Then James says, why don't you pray about doing this? So then he has to go up to the priest. That's day three. Then he has to go keep himself, you know, for seven days before he is, uh, he's purified. Then he has to go back. We're already on the ninth day. When he's back up there, the riot starts. Then he's a day in the fortress. And uh, then he's two days on his way there. So he's only been 12 days. How can I turn the whole world upside down? What do you think what these guys are saying? He, he said, I came to worship, and he says, there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people. I, I didn't rouse anybody up. I wasn't disputing with people. He loved to do that, but he said I wasn't doing it. <clears throat> neither raising up the people neither in the synagogues nor in the city. They didn't find me anywhere doing what they're saying. Neither can they prove the things whereof they are now accusing me. You know, where's the witnesses? They're, they're making this, bring up, you know, people who saw with their eyes. For this I confess. So first he says, untrue, measure these things. They didn't happen. I was just there a short time when all of this took place. Secondly, but this I confess. I'll be honest, you want a confession? That's why they have me here. They want a confession, I'll give it to you. <clears throat> but this I confess unto thee, 
that after the way, which they called heresy, the sect in verse 5 of the Nazarenes, after that way, which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers. It's not a heresy. It's not a sect. It's a way. You know, what you and I have in Christianity is a way. It isn't just a theological position, though everybody should have their own systematic theology that they embrace and adhere to. We're, we're called to learn, to be scholars, to be students. Uh, the Bereans were more noble because they didn't just believe what Paul said. They went and studied the scriptures to see if those things were true. And interesting, Paul says, yeah, I, I am. After what they call a sect, according to that way, the way of the Nazarenes, I worship the God of my fathers. I'm not, I'm not upsetting Judaism. He says, they say it's called this way. He said, but it's by that I worship the God of my fathers. Look, believing all things, all should be marked there in your Bible. Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. So he's a fundamentalist, is what he's saying. Like the Pharisees, that's what they were. Because the Pharisees believed the law, the first five books, and the prophets. Because of that, they had a greater commitment to resurrection than the Sadducees. There wasn't much in the Pentateuch that talked about resurrection. We're told in Hebrews that Abraham believed that if necessary, God would have raised his son from the dead, Isaac, if he had sacrificed him actually from the ashes because he was going to burn them, which is remarkable faith. But he's saying, I'm fundamental in my faith. I, I believe the law and the prophets. What, what Judaism has embraced for centuries, that's how I believe. And he said, you know, he's, he's going to put the, the, it's the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, it's Ananias here who doesn't believe in resurrection. I believe all things that are written in the law and in the prophets. He's a Pharisee. He identifies himself still as a Pharisee, even though he's a Christian. And he says, and have hope towards God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. Daniel chapter 12 says this. I'll find it. Look at my computer notes here. Daniel chapter 12 says, And at, the at that time shall Michael stand up, Michael the archangel, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, great tribulation, not too far in front of us, even to the same time, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Paul's saying, I believe, Daniel the prophet, I believe everything's written in the law and the prophets. He says, which our religion allows. He said, they allow that there shall be a resurrection and for us to have hope tied to that. Look, you and I, that's, that's where we are. What's our hope? Your hope, by now, we all should know, can't be politics, right? Our hope can't be peace on earth. We're looking what's happening in Ukraine and around the world. 
Our hope can't be in vaccinations. We have no idea what's happening with that. And we're surrounded with all the, I was talking to Don McClure, he said, you know, we have to remember, you know, like Israel, we're surrounded with Ukraine. We're surrounded with racial problems. We're surrounded with money problems. We're surrounded with no, you know, formula for our kids. If they don't kill them by the time they're born, and then they get them any, I'll teach them about gender when they're five years old. You know, just you, you look at all the, the, the crazy stuff around us and the, the you know, the, the pandemic and, and all of this stuff. And he said, you know, it's like the Israel, Israelites. They were surrounded with the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites. He said, we're surrounded with all the ites. They're all around us. But God never said any of them were a problem. He said to the Jews, the problem is you need to walk in my ways. I'll bring down the walls of Jericho. I'll cause the sun to stand still in the valley of Agilon. There's no problem with enemies. This is the promised land. I brought you in. The problem is, are you living out your faith? Are you living out your faith? It says here, as Christians, Nazarites, Nazarenes, in this world with all the insanity around us, we have the hope of resurrection. We have an anchor that the unsaved world around us have. And they're searching in all the wrong places, trying to get meaning, trying to find fairness, trying to find prosperity, trying to find peace. And it isn't anywhere out there. It's in Jesus Christ and in salvation. Because sinners like you and I are forgiven and we're washed in his blood, we have hope. Imagine not being born again, watching the news now. Imagine watching the news without a Bible to read. There's something that sets us apart, and it isn't our position with social justice and social issues. What's, and we should be proactive with those things, but what sets us apart is we're from another kingdom. And we have another hope that, than unsaved men. And Paul says, are you kidding me? I'm being brought before civil leaders. I'm being brought to court because I have hope. And he says, which our own... It's because I believe the word. <laughs> Everything is written in the law and the prophets. I believe the scripture. I have hope. And he says, they themselves are accusing me also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense towards God and towards men. Let me tell you something. If you don't have hope, if you don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't believe there's something after this, I mean, the Bema seat of Christ where, where we will stand and then glory, if you don't believe in that, you're never gonna live so your conscience is clear. He, he says, because of that hope, he says, he says, I do exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense towards God and towards men because of the blessed hope we have, because there's a day. That's, look, that's why the world hates creation, because if we came from monkeys, that's fine. Crawled out of a slimy pit, formed an eye on our salamander forehead, 
And uh, next thing we built Teslas. You know, you can see the process. Um, But if we believe in creation, then we all have the same worth. And there's outside intelligence. There's accountability. If there's a creator, there's accountability. For you and I, that becomes hope. For you and I, you know, exercising my conscience in a certain way so that I'm not shamed means if I mess up, I confess my sins. He's faithful and just to forgive me, to cleanse me. It doesn't mean my conscience is always perfect because I never did anything wrong. It means I exercise my conscience so that I can walk before the Lord. I'm quick to run to him in my weaknesses. I'm quick to confess. I have a conscience, like he says here, <clears throat> that's void of offense. My conscience isn't offended because I go right to Christ with my issues. And Paul says, you know, imagine his conscience. Murdered the church, made men and women, you know, blaspheming the name of Jesus at the point of a sword. It says he persecuted them unto death. And he's saying here, my conscience is fine. <laughs> right? I have always, kind of recently, Paul, but I have always a conscience void of offense towards God and towards men. He said, I keep myself that way because I have this hope. How quickly is life going by for each of us? We're young. We're doing this. We're doing that. I can remember when I was young. I can remember I was young. I think I can remember that I was young. You know, I've become my father, you know, or something, you know. Uh, you, you never think you're going to be 70 years old, ever. And they said to me things to me when I was a teenager. I thought, oh, yeah, you don't understand. And now I'm one of the person who don't understand anything. <laughs> it goes by, the Bible says, like a dream. But the greatest part of my life is still ahead of me. You know, my, my calling is to live out this life for Christ the best that I can. Enjoy daily the benefits he loads me with. And then step to the other side. That's the largest part of my life. That's the fulfillment of my calling. It, it isn't satisfying my flesh in this world. And God's given us a lot of things to enjoy. I'm not saying, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a depresso. That's not what I'm saying. But I think these days, because of the way the world's falling apart, if I didn't know Christ, I didn't have his word, I would be a depresso. Paul says here, I have this hope. It's about the resurrection. Because I have this hope, I live a life, you know, and I keep my conscience always void of offense towards God and towards men. Now, after many years... I came to bring alms to my nation and my offspring. He came to bring this offering to Jerusalem. And he understands when he uses the word alms, he's talking about to the poor. And, and Felix knows there's poverty, knows there's difficulty. He's got jurisdiction over the area. And he says, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia... 
they found me, I was purified. I wasn't doing anything that wasn't according to the scripture and their law. I'm a Pharisee. They found me, I was purified in the temple, neither with multitude or with tumult. I was there worshiping, I was ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean, I wasn't doing anything wrong. Who ought to have been here before thee? Those are the ones who saw me there and drug me out of the court of men, out of the court of Israel, through the court of women, out in the court of the Gentiles, started to beat me to death. And understand that Roman law was that without eyewitnesses, charges should be dropped. Romans were very serious about this. You imagine having to have order over the entire Roman Empire. Um, and they bludgeoned the world into submission, but they understood what there needed to be for there to be order. And in their course, according to Roman law, if your accusers and the eyewitnesses don't come, the, the case should be dropped. He says, they should have been here before thee and object if they had anything against me. Or else let these same that are here say, if they found any evil doing in me. Well, Tertus wasn't even there. And uh, the other guys didn't hear about it till the commotion started. They weren't there. He says, while I stood before the council, what, with, I came. They wanted me to come and give an account of myself. Ask them if they found anything evil in me. Except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead. I am called this day into question. Billy Graham said at the end of World War II, he spent a day with Conrad Adenauer, and they were in the, the palace there in, in Germany, one of the palaces. And Adenauer said to him, Mr. Graham, what hope is there? Billy Graham said, there's the hope of the resurrection. Adenauer stood there completely quiet for a while. And then he said, Mr. Graham, without the resurrection, I see no hope for mankind. You think what a profound statement that is, you know? I used to love to watch Billy Graham and Larry King, because he always freaked out Larry King, you know. I think Larry King really respected him, though, and would bring him on. And uh, someone else was on after Graham was on. I remember watching Graham on there once, and, and uh, he said, Billy, he said, do you think things are worse than they've ever been? And he said, I do much better than that, but he said, but I believe things are better than they've ever been as well. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, the Lord said that the end of the age is going to be like the tares and the wheat growing together. And he's not going to send the angels in to harvest lest they tear up the wheat with the tares. He said, Larry, right now, the tares are riper than they've ever been, and the wheat is riper than it's ever been, and that means any time Jesus Christ is coming to judge the world and burn the tares with fire and gather the wheat. And Larry said, uh, and what do you think about this? He changed the subject. You know, it, must have been, it must have been unnerving. And one of the interviews right after that, someone said to Larry King, if you could interview anybody in history, who would it be? 
He said, Mary. He said, what? He said, Mary, the mother of Jesus. He said, why would you interview her? He said, because if I could hear from her that she, in fact, was a virgin when she gave birth, all my other questions are answered, he said. You know, and it's, and it's just funny, the things you and I take for granted. You know, we get, we're in the Christian culture. We're, we're living through this together. We become part of the family of God, our conversations and so forth. They, they center around the one we love. And sometimes I think we can forget the, how lonely and how, you know, empty and how dark it and how hopeless it is out there. And how desperate it is for us to pray. That the Lord, I pray, that he brings one more awakening, one more movement of his spirit before this shuts down. If he raptures us tonight, I'll be happy to. I'm not going to complain. But the point is, you know, you think there's probably millions out there still to be saved. And each person that gets saved, that's an eternity. One person, it's an eternity. That's why Jesus says, you know, what does it matter if you gain the whole world? and lose your soul. It's the whole cosmos, the whole universe. What he's saying is one soul, your soul, is worth more to God than the entire universe. So the blessed hope that we have, keeping our consciences right before God, the promise in scripture, the whole scripture, the, the hope that we have through the word of God was it was sufficient and effective then. It is sufficient and effective tonight. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Read ahead. Felix is in the hot seat as we move forward. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we look into these things. Lord, we, Lord, I pray just, Lord, if there's any here tonight that have never come to you, they're unsaved. Maybe they're thinking, I don't have that hope, or my conscience isn't clear. Lord, that they come up to talk with or pray with one of the pastors at the end of the service, Lord, as we, we fellowship here in the front, Lord. But for all of us, Lord, we're your children. Lord, I am your son, Father. And I'm thankful, Lord, that I've grown in grace and the knowledge of who you are to the point that I've grown. I'm sure there's much more in the ages to come that will still, Lord, be coming in light to me. But I'm so thankful, and we all are, Lord, that our conscience can be right because we can flee to you. We think of all that Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, had on his conscience and how he said, through the power of your blood, Lord Jesus, through the the resurrection, the Father approving of your sacrifice by rising you from the dead. And the promise, hope that we have in that, that he could live with his conscience clear. Lord, let us see that. Let us believe that there's power in the scripture to cause that to happen in our lives as well. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.